And when they had crucified him, they divided his garments by casting lots. Two robbers were crucified with him, one on the right and one on the left. And those who passed by derided him, wagging their heads and saying, You! who would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days. Save yourself. If you are the Son of God, come down from the cross. So also the chief priests with the scribes and elders mocked him, saying, He saved others. He cannot save himself. He is the King of Israel. Let him come down now from the cross, and then we'll believe in him. He trusts in God. Well, let God deliver him now if he desires him. For he said, I am the Son of God. And the robbers who were crucified with him also reviled him in the same way. Now from the sixth hour, there was darkness over all the land until the ninth hour. Within the Jewish tabernacle and later the temple, there is a first section, what we might call an outermost section, in which the priests would regularly perform their ritual duties. Many call this the holy place. But then there is an innermost section, what many label the most holy place, into which the high priest could only enter one day per year on the Day of Atonement to especially make a blood offering for his sins and the sins of the people. And so we again have these two sections of the temple, and they're separated by a curtain, by a veil. Listen to the Lord's instructions for this curtain. And you shall make a veil of blue and purple and scarlet yarns and fine twined linen. It shall be made with cherubim, skillfully worked into it. And you shall hang it on four pillars of acacia overlaid with gold, with hooks of gold on four bases of silver. And you shall hang the veil from the clasps and bring the ark of the testimony in there within the veil. And the veil shall separate for you the holy place from the most holy. This curtain would have been likely very, very, very tall. We generally estimate a cubit, a cubit to be about a foot and a half. The historian Josephus writes that the temple of Jesus' day had a height of 40 cubits. 40 cubits times a foot and a half, roughly 60 feet. That is approximately 10 Craig's standing one on top of another. That tall, that high, this curtain. Additionally, the curtain would have been extremely thick. Charles Smith references records that say it was 18 inches thick. Vincent says, according to the rabbis, the curtain was a hand breadth in thickness and woven of 72 twisted plates, each plate consisting of 24 threads. 
on that day at 3 p.m. Matthew tells us, and Jesus cried out again with a loud voice and yielded up his spirit. And behold, the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. Torn in two. Eighteen inches, a hand breadth in thickness from top to bottom. BK 520, not from the bottom to the top, from top to bottom. Estimated again to be 60 feet high. One scholar rightly observes the direction of this tear from top, from top, starting from top to bottom would show that no human hands had torn it apart. Simultaneously, 3 p.m. is the hour of prayer in the Jewish temple, during which three priests would have been inside of the holy place, attending to the incense offering, the coals of the golden altar. What a sight! What a sight they must have seen at precisely 3 p.m. as the enormous blue, purple, and scarlet veil before them tears completely in two. And it's no wonder that Luke will later tell us a great many of the priests became obedient to the faith. Symbolically speaking, one might think of the temple in a way as representing heaven. For example, a couple of times the Revelation account speaks of the temple in heaven, Revelation 11, 19, Revelation 14, 17. And like heaven, the temple might be considered to be the place of God, where God is, as much as one can really say that about an omnipresent being. At the same time, I think it's fair to say without explanation needed that rocks kind of represent earth. So once again, the temple represents heaven, rocks represent the earth, Look again at what happens when Jesus gives up his spirit upon the cross. And behold, the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom, and the earth shook and the rocks were split. If you notice, we have both the temple and the rocks in this verse. Our representatives of heaven and of earth. Now... Modern translations, they like to get a little fancy here. But the Greek reveals something truly fascinating. I'm going to pull up a concordance as well as the King James Version so you can see it. And behold, the veil of the temple was rent in twain from the top to the bottom, and the earth did quake and the rocks rent. This is good old G4977 that we're bringing up for you. See how it shows up twice? Can you see that? I hope you can. This tells us that the same Greek word appears in both places. In other words, what happens to the curtain is also what happens to the rocks. They were both schizo. And you got to like get the phlegm in your throat when you say that stuff part at the beginning. And it looks like that word we, from which we get schism like the Roman Catholic and Eastern Orthodox churches, that split. If you're familiar with church history, that split, that tearing. 
But I think the King James Version does a commendable thing here. You see, not only is the court curtain, not only is the curtain torn, but the rocks too are torn. Not only is the curtain rent, but also the rocks are rent. Now a question for you, in that culture, when were things torn? When he learns of Joseph's supposed death, Jacob, Joseph's father, tears his garments. When David hears that Saul and Jonathan have died in war, David takes hold of his clothes and tears them. Elisha does the same when Elijah is gone. Job does the same when all of his children are gone. And on and on we could go. Remember, we have heaven and earth here. The temple and the rocks. The curtain torn. The rocks torn. And so what do we got? Upon hearing Jesus cry out with a loud voice, upon hearing of the death of the Son of God, heaven takes hold of its garment, that curtain, and tears it from top to bottom in grief. And to the earth. The earth beholds and shakes and tears its clothing too. In this case, it's the very rocks and crags which cover and adorn it. Heaven and earth cry out in agony. They weep. They mourn. It's just like Jesus said when he triumphantly enters Jerusalem earlier that week, a large multitude of disciples rejoice and praise God with a loud voice. But only several days later, at the foot of an accursed cross, mocking and scorning have now replaced the joy and the praise. For all intents and purposes, there is silence. And Jesus said way back then, as he rode into the holy city atop that donkey, I tell you, if these people were silent, the very stones would cry out. And as the silence of scorn and hate surrounds the cross, the earth steps in where people should have and cries out at the death of our Lord and our God. The Lord says to Moses, tell Aaron your brother not to come at any time into the holy place inside the veil before the mercy seat that is on the ark so that he may not die, for I will appear in the cloud over the mercy seat. The implication is that God's presence would continually be inside the most holy place, that this is the location where he would appear, where he could be seen. One could not behold God presumptuously nor with impure eyes. He is the holy God. He determines when he may be approached. He dictates when he may be seen. It is not the other way around. Therefore, we have this curtain, this veil of more than adequate thickness to make sure that no one presumes to even catch a peek at the glory of the Lord without his approval that not even a glimmer of his light passes through the fabric. Consider then, for a moment, the significance of what happens to that curtain at the moment of Jesus' death. It is at that precise moment 
when our Heavenly Father gives His Son for the sins of the world that the curtain tears in two. Remember that it could be fairly said of that veil that it blocked anyone from getting to see God. But when Jesus dies, at that exact moment, the veil is torn, the curtain is raised, and for all intents and purposes, God says to the world at that very moment, here I am, all of my glory for all to see. Do you see God? He does not tear the curtain when Jericho gets obliterated because at that moment a person does not really and fully see God. And he does not tear the curtain when he empowers a young shepherd to slay a Philistine giant because even at that moment a person still does not really and fully see God. He does not even tear the curtain when the storm gets stilled, at the walking on water, nor at the radiant shine upon the Mount of Transfiguration, because even at these times, one does not, in the best and fullest sense, really see God. No, the moment when the veil is torn and the curtain parts, the exact moment at which God's glory is on full display is right here. Here is where you fully and finally see God. And when the world tries to show you, when the world tries to show you another view of God, you come back to this. Because this is when you really see God. Never forget this. The writer of Hebrews shares the following. We have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain that is through his flesh. Notice the imagery of the temple here. We have the holy places. We might think of the most holy place. And we also have the curtain. And to what does the writer relate the curtain? He compares it to the flesh of Jesus. As that curtain was torn in two from top to bottom, so was Jesus' flesh on that day. He was scourged, his skin and muscles and tendons ripped apart by a whip containing pieces of bone and metal over and over again, his flesh snatched from his body. And if you consider that a crown of thorns was pressed into his scalp and later stakes driven through his hands and feet, then it might be truly said of him that he was torn from top to, yes, even the very bottom to his feet. And through the suffering of the curtain of his body, blue as the heavens, purple as royalty, yet scarlet as he bears the sin of man. He opens a way for us to draw near to God. His blood is a continual offering that makes it possible for us to approach him, not once per year, but without ceasing. And we may not do so with timidity nor fear, but with confidence. 
And why can we have this confidence through Jesus? God reminds us of a wonderful promise only two verses before. I will remember their sins and their lawless deeds no more. I most certainly do not agree with all of the teaching and preaching of Charles Spurgeon. But he writes this about the tearing of the curtain with which I agree in full. Quote, it is not a slight rent through which we may see a little, but it is a rent from top to bottom. There is an entrance made for the greatest sinners. If there had only been a small hole cut through it, then the lesser offenders might have crept through. But what an act of abounding mercy is this, that the veil is rent in the midst and rent from top to bottom so that the chief of sinners the chief of sinners may find ample passage, end quote. So many Christians struggle with guilt. How many of us have a difficult time forgiving ourselves? And I know that I often allow my imperfections and shortcomings to keep me from drawing near to God in worship and in prayer. But reflect on this passage just a moment with me. Craig, to you we ask, is not the curtain already torn completely in two from top to bottom? Was not the brutal maiming of Jesus' flesh enough to grant access to the holy places of God? Is his blood good enough or not? to give us confidence to enter when unreasonable and irrational guilt invades and we subsequently retreat from God, we essentially declare, the curtain's not open for me right now. Which means we're saying that the offering of Jesus' very own flesh is not enough. He didn't suffer enough for me, so I need to suffer some on my own. That, 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 to me, that borders a little bit on blasphemy. And that's when we, what happens when we do not forgive ourselves. As a separate question, why do we so often neglect prayer? Why do we fail to cherish drawing near to God and worship? He gave his body to secure us these privileges and blessings. So what does it say of us when we then put up our very own curtain in its place? Maybe the curtain of self-reliance or the curtain of continual distraction or the veil of better things to do with our time. Let me in, let me in, the wolf said big and bad, but little pig pointed to chin, an entrance he forbade. Let me in, let me in, to Noah did the wicked implore, as waters rushed outside the ark, but God had closed the door. Let me in, let me in, Peter asked at MJ's play. 
But showtime was at 8 o'clock. Spider-Man must wait another day. Let me in, let me in, the Oreo says to you. But you can't let just one of them, so you welcome in all 32. And let me in, let me in, is that what the curtain is all about? Pardon me, but I disagree. It's not just let me in, but also let God out. Paul writes to the church in Corinth, do you not know that you are God's temple and that God's spirit dwells in you? He also writes the following to the church in Ephesus. You are built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. Paul also would write to the individual Christian, Do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? When Jesus died on the cross, so much was accomplished, so many things were fulfilled, so much that was needed was done, it is finished. He says among his last breaths. And one of those finished things is this. Our God desires so much more than being confined to some cubicle room in the corner of a temple in Jerusalem. He wants to dwell among his people, with his people, in his people. And Jesus' death made that possible, making this and yes, even this, a most holy place. So let's appreciate this amazing blessing. Let's cherish it. Let's dedicate our lives collectively, individually, to holy and upright living. Let us live our lives as if God is with us every single second. Living, yes, in the fear of the Lord but also blending our will into his own, living in joy, living in love. And may we know that to worship God, we need not go to some mountain or enter some physical temple. We only must worship him in spirit and in truth. This evening, we offer an invitation. The full price has been paid. The full price has been paid. The curtain that is Jesus' flesh has been torn, and even the biggest of sinners may enter. That veil is torn from top to bottom. God invites you into fellowship, into communion, into friendship with Him. And it's not about whether He'll let you in. At this moment, He's ready to receive you Instead, it's about whether you will let him in. Let him into your life, into your heart. And so his invitation is offered to you now as together we stand and sing.